I'm Bruce Hoffman, and I am an alcoholic. And I thank you for asking me to share tonight. I don't know, you guys probably... I'm praying for the, the right words, and it's going to be out of God's mouth, I think, and it's not mine, because I have no thought in my head right now. Had a long day at work, and an alcoholic like myself, after a long day of work, wants to sit and veg, or, uh, you know, I can't keep a, a, a single thought in my head for any length of time, and I have the book in front of me, and I always feel safer when I'm speaking when I have the book in front of me, and I don't know what that's all about. But uh, I, uh, I bought one of the first printings of the fourth edition, and back in the day when Alcoholics Anonymous was trying to save money, they decided to save it on the glue they used for the binding, and they all fall apart. <laughs> but I'm in pieces here, but it's in front of me, and I, I feel that you guys are my friends. You guys help me save my life every day and every time I show up. You guys also enhance my spiritual condition, and the book talks about me having to do such that, just that to stay sober. My sponsor uh, beats into my head still today that I trust God, clean house, and help others. And I'm daily cleaning house. Um, I'm going to say on page, well, I'm going to go to 317. I have, yet, <clears throat> I have yet to find a place in the big book that says, now I have completed the steps. Have a nice life. The program is a plan for a lifetime of daily living. You know, um, I need this every day because I don't have a direction. And as an alcoholic, I grew up an angry little kid at six years old throwing rocks at cars, sitting in a mud puddle in the orchard on the long, alongside the road, mad at the world. And I could never figure out why. And I was usually mad at my sister or my mother. And I threw a rock at a car, and it was my next-door neighbor's car. He drags me out of this mud puddle, drags me home, and I got into all kinds of, of trouble. Now, it, it was kind of funny. That's characteristic of my childhood, though. I, had it, I really wanted to blame my folks when I first sobered up about the life I had when I was growing up. Now, throughout time as being sober, I got to find out a whole lot more about my family that I didn't know about before I came and entered into the program. Um, I drank a lot. I got into a lot of trouble. I would, every time I would drink, I would probably go to jail. If not, I was in a blackout with a wrecked car. Or there was one time I went through nine bushes, went uh, 13 miles, and then the last two miles were through a, a big cemetery in my hometown, Yakima, Washington. And the way that the police found me were breadcrumbs from a TA radial that I had just bought for my car. It was a brand new tire. And here I am doing, I had a fast black car, and I went through this Tahoma Cemetery with a flat tire because I had taken out nine bushes, and I let a friend off along the way, and he will to this day not ride in the same car with me. And that was many years ago. That's the characteristic of me drinking. That's what happens to me when I drink. Um, I forget to be kind. I forget to be grateful. I forget to be who I am. Because I don't know. That was why I drank. I didn't know who I was. And what I felt was when I had that relief of alcohol that I could be bigger, taller, better, better looking, you name it, I'm, I'm all it and a bag of chips. And I didn't realize that. And in the big book, it only talks for a paragraph and a half about shortcomings and character defects. And I had a hard time with that for a long time, and I'm still working on those things. Um, I had three DWIs in seven days in 1977. They took me out. Uh, the judge made me sell that fast black car, and I had to go to treatment. 
And when I got back out four hours after that, I smoked pot. And that led me back to the booze because I was any and all, and if a little's good, a lot's better kind of guy. And I counted my drinks and I changed the way I did it. I ate more, I slept more, or I slept less, or I took more speed, or whatever it was, changed the outcome inevitably of this blackout that I was always having. And, um, and in 1991, I, I, what leads me to today is uh, the difference was I quit blaming you and the government and the uh, law uh, for all of my problems in life. And I always thought, you know, I, I had three VWIs and they were in three different cities. And I always had something in my back seat or underneath my front seat uh, to do before I left town. And uh, the difference this time was I quit blaming people. I slammed the brakes on in front of a state patrol this time in 1989. And it wasn't yet my birthday of sobriety, but... Um, I was trying to find a way to slow down or have them help me stop. And I, it was ironic how God works in my life because the night I th threw the brakes on in front of the state patrol, my drink went all over the dash. I was destroyed over another broken relationship. Uh, I really had no way of understanding that I couldn't form a true relationship with another human being, including my folks. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I have a communication problem as well as alcoholism. That's one of my character defects. That's one of my shortcomings that now with your guys, you guys and your help and what you've taught me uh, means the world to me. You know, you might not know me very well, but you really do because uh, I love you guys. I fit here. I don't want to go anywhere. I had a lecture last night from my sponsor saying, well, you know, my sponsor raised me up to have to, we had to uh, stay away from meetings from two to three weeks at a time. And I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not growing when I'm doing that. I, I'm just maintaining. He says, well, you need to know how to live. And it was interesting because I went to the 4848 Club last Saturday night, and I heard this, this lady, 46 years sober, say in 19, I think it was 48. She sobered up in 1966 or 68, and she said, well, my sponsor didn't show me the way through the book and read the steps and tell me to go read a chapter here and a chapter there to get this program, she showed me how she lived. And boy, that it drove it home for me. Because you see, you guys conditioned me for this hour or whatever we're doing here to live out there. Because I'm not here in Alcoholics Anonymous to hide from life. I, will, I refuse to do that. You guys have allowed me to walk like a free man. And that's what they told me when I first started to go to my first few meetings is that I could, too, walk like a free man, and that intrigued me. I wanted to know how they did that, because I was trapped in my own mind. I was afraid to go out of my house after I had slammed the brakes on in front of that cop. They took me in, they booked me, and they said, well, Bruce, we like you. We're going to take you home tonight. There's no room at the inn. And I said, man, you can't do that. I'm gonna, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to get locked up. I'm gonna, I want to be safe here. This is the only place I know to be safe is you, when you lock me up. And he chuckled, and we, I, I must have been a happy drunk that night because he took me home. And I said, well, I've got to find myself some way, a different uh, lifestyle, and I need to go to treatment. And uh, he said, well, good luck. We'll be keeping you posted. We'll be checking in on you here in another week or two. You've got to go to a Raymond on Monday. And so I went into the house, and I looked around at all the beer cans and the bottles and stuff, and I started to clean up. And I started to look at myself in the mirror. 
you know, it was yet to be my sobriety date, but I think I had done a first step that evening after I'd gotten dropped off by the state patrol. And, and I looked at this guy in the mirror and I didn't like what I saw. And I hadn't liked what I had seen for a long time. And I started to have this moment of clarity about where I was going and what I wanted to do because I used to brag about doing it sitting on the bar stool and I'd never get out of town without something in the back seat or underneath my seat. And I thought, man, I'm getting older. Wow, what am I going to do with my life? I just felt like I, the bus was leaving and I wasn't on it. And um, so through the process of trying to not shed myself of all my old friends, um, because I, I still believe that if you hang with the dog with fleas, you're going to get the fleas too. And, you know, I still love those guys. They don't want anything to do with me now because I'm contagious. Uh, but I tried to explain to them that I wasn't out to be a narc, a snitch, that they were still my friends. But you know what? I had to find another avenue of communication because, you see, the old drug talk and the old drinking talk, the old jokes, didn't work anymore. And I found that out to be true at 30 days. I went back to see my old friends after I'd gone through treatment, and, or I was going through treatment, and I went back to visit them, and I found out that I had nothing in common with those guys. You know, and even today, I have more in common with you guys. I really do. You guys, you guys make me fit, and I love you for that. And I never used to be able to say that to anybody. And uh, so here I go. I'm doing the treatment thing at night. I, I, I wrote the judge a letter, and I wrote the cop a letter thanking them for helping me start a new path and, to say, and, and saving my life, even though I had no idea that it was truly going to happen. But I was sober for more than a week or two, and I was going to these treatment center meetings, and there was a group of about 12 of us that would meet every night. And I'm still lost. I'm feeling less than. I was always compared to my sister at the dinner table, and I could never measure up to what she would do at, at school or after work. And they'd send her to Europe, and I would be there fixing my wreck cars. And uh, I understand that now, and that's all right. I guess that's the path I, I was supposed to go down or I chose. And um, so anyway, I would go to these treatment center meetings, and there was a lady there, a really nice lady, that always wanted to sit by me. I felt like I belonged when she was there. And, and about two weeks into the program um, of treatment, uh, she quit coming, and it was kind of mandatory that we all went. We had to have a card signed there, and we had, you know, certain duties as in treatment that we had to take care of, and it was an outpatient treatment center. And she quit coming, and about the third night, I said, hey, where's Louise? What's, what's going on with Louise? Why, why isn't she here? And the counselor stood up in front of the, the whole group and said, well, you guys must not have heard, but Louise went home and drank a bottle of wine the other night and died in her own puke. And that was one of the first God shots. And they aren't all positive, but that was one of the little Eskimos that made me really think about the, the pathway I was going down. Because I would pass out I don't know how many times and I would go to sleep, and every morning I'd wake up. And there was one morning I woke up, and that fast black car was sitting outside my parents' back in the, in the backyard, and I woke up there, and I hadn't lived there in years. I left home at about 16 and a half, 17, and I never looked back. Uh, I tried to stay there for a week, and I, I couldn't even make it a week. Um, 
But I looked out the window one, one morning, and I woke up from a bad nightmare. And that was the night I had taken out the nine bushes and went through the, uh, the cemetery, and the cops found this trail of tire, and they couldn't book me because they didn't find me in the car. The girlfriend that I had at the time, her parents hid me out and locked me in their apartment and shut the lights off, but they knew right where to go. Anyway, they couldn't catch me in the car, so that was another yet. They didn't give me a DWI that night, and they were still called DWIs. And they gave me a neg negligent, which continued the process of my alcoholism. And so um, I started telling stories like that in the treatment center, and we became very close. Now, there was a, a whole group of 40 in all the groups that went through it, that treatment center while they were in Yakima, my hometown. And I'm not here to boast about this, and I'm very scared because that yet there for the grace of God go I, but I am the only one with the same original birth date. There isn't anybody else that has this. There are other people that are still sober, but they didn't claim the same birth date. They went out since treatment, and they've changed their birth date, or they have died, or they've moved, and I've lost track of them. But to my knowledge, I'm the only one with the same birth date. Now, that's the average. is about 1 in 40 get this thing. I don't know, I, and I'm not going to talk statistics. I just know I'm glad you guys are here because you're now part of the winners in my life. You guys are, the, you guys are what make me come back every Thursday. And when I see Jack downtown or wherever I go, I go to meetings to meet people just like yourself, and I challenge anybody here to go to a different meeting that they don't know and go to and go meet somebody new in that meeting because you never know. They might be the, the reason you're happy tomorrow or you're sober. And because if I don't continue to enlarge my spiritual condition, the book tells me I'll get drunk. And I found that you guys gave me a God that I don't have to, I don't have to hide behind. I don't, I can, I don't have to brag about it. I, I do, but I, I can't paint a picture of him to, for you. I can't, I can't explain to you what he looks like. It might be coming out of Jason tonight or Mike, you know, or Paul. You never know. I, you guys will say, will say something at the most appropriate time. Now, I got really busy in the program after I, I got out of the treatment center, and I knew that there was something drastically le uh, lacking in my life, and I asked this man to be my sponsor. And he was four years sober. He was learning to be a chemical dependency counselor, and he needed a place to stay. So I put him up in my house. And I hung every word that he said on the wall because I thought this guy was going to keep me sober. He was going to do it for me. And what ended up happening was when in 1990, in August, I was about, uh, well, March, April, May, June, July, August. That's how I was six months sober, I guess, five months sober. Anyway, I go to the 1990 International Convention for Alcoholics Anonymous in Seattle. And I was there overnight, and I came back home to Yakima. And luckily, I had met two guys that were going to meetings with me. And they were constantly by my side. We were riding together. We were driving together. We were doing everything together because we didn't know how to do anything sober. And we were afraid to be on our own. We were afraid to be alone. So I hung with these guys. They said, hey, shut up, get in the car. We're going to go to an AA meeting. Where are you going? Just shut up and get in the car. So that's exactly what I did. And you know, I was willing then, like I am today, to push a peanut nude down Main Street, Yakima, Washington, with my nose, if I had to stay sober or not. I want to do it. I want to stay sober. And I still have that willingness today. 
Um, I want others to get this thing that I feel that I'm getting a grasp of, and that is happiness, true happiness, out there. Not just in the meetings. Not that safe feeling that I always get when I go to meetings. It's when I'm standing out in the firing line when things aren't doing so well and people are griping at me or people are cutting me off in traffic. I want to be happy. You know, the alcoholism that I have today is still there. It wakes me up at 2 o'clock in the morning some mornings telling me i got to worry about something I have no control <coughs> You know, there was a situation even today with a gentleman that I work with that's supposed to be my immediate leader. And I had to go and run around him a couple of different times just because of him. But you know what? Yesterday afternoon, at the end of the day, even though I was so hot, it only lasted 20 minutes and I went over. I didn't want to do it the whole way across the room when I shook his hand before I left home for home. I knew if I had walked out being angry like I was, and it would fester overnight and that problem would become enormous. You know, uh, I try to do that kind of thing today. I try not to let things fester because the resentments they say in this book will kill me. Absolutely, they will kill me. And um, I felt really ugly. I felt like I had taken a bad drug when I got home. And that's this emotion, this, this uh, adrenaline that I used to thrive on because when I first sobered up, that was the only drug I had. And so I would do things, living life on, an, on the edge, to get that adrenaline to flow because that was a drug that I, I enjoyed. Well, now today, it, there's consequences for that because it talks about an emotional hangover <clears throat> as well. We also end up having a hangover like an alcohol hangover after we've blown our gasket and we've gotten mad and I don't like that feeling, and that's the way I felt when I went home. But I thank, I said a short prayer when I got home, and I thank God for making me go up and shake that man's hand. And that is the way I try to live my life today. I try to mean what I say, but don't say it mean. And you guys have taught me that through the steps. Um, I knew I was, uh, my life was unmanageable. I didn't think that sanity would return as quickly as it did, and I don't know how sane I was even at two years. Because that's about how long the spins took to get rid of. I was almost <coughs> hospitalized because of the, the problems with the alcohol. They thought I was a bipolar and then a manic depressive. I would fly into a rage. I'd throw chairs and ashtrays at the first early meetings. And I'm hoping today you, you folks don't see that man. That's my, that's my goal today. Because I can fly into a rage like I, I scare myself. And... Um, I noticed a little bit of that yesterday. See, this, the problems that I had back then in my drinking days, they still go on, but I react differently. You guys helped me with that, even though you weren't there yesterday afternoon to help me shake that man's hand. But I thought of all of you while I was standing there doing it. You see, I want to live life on life's terms, but I also know God will, will throw things at me after I think I've gone through it and I'll, I've learned my lesson that I'll never have to go through it again. But God will put it at me in a different angle, in a different direction, and catch me when I'm not, not paying attention, and it will mess with me. Because I have this alcoholic mind that says I'm not good enough, or I need to do it better than you, or there's, it's, I'm never the right size. And that's where six and seven came in. Now, when I read the first par that paragraph and a half after I'd given everything away, I'm going to backtrack. The man that I had sponsor me made me mad enough, long enough, to find another sponsor 
because when I came home from the international that that weekend, my truck my truck was stolen or it was gone, and my house was ransacked, and um, I knew I had to find this guy, and I found him down at a bar with a bubbling beer in front of him, and I said, "You better get the truck home because I'm going to have you arrested for theft of auto." And he came back to the house, and we rolled around on the kitchen. That was my last real physical altercation with a human being. And it was a knockdown, drag out, broken chairs. And uh, the two guys that I had gone to meetings with were standing right there. And, and the guy that I was tussling around with stood up and said, well, you're not sober. Now, folks, that would hurt me to the quick because this is the first time in my life I had ever tried to do anything 100%. I, I, felt, I felt violated greatly. And I said, well, yes, I am. This is, how do you know? Why do you think that? He says, well, I found your pot tray underneath the bed. Now, that is another God shot in my life. I had no power. I was powerless over the pot tray underneath my bed for almost six months. I didn't tell anybody about it, but I knew it was under there. And I knew, I thought maybe I could dry out and I could start smoking that again after I dried out and straightened up my life. And then you guys talked about total abstinence. Nothing, 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 don't. Don't even. And we were talking about cooking with alcohol beforehand. Hey, if you've got any, if you've got any inkling that there might be something in it, don't do it. It's not worth the, ch it's not worth the risk. It really isn't. Um, anyway, I love that guy today. Still, he's not sober. Um, he has one tooth in his head left. He's back into crank and some other stuff. I believe he's still alive. I haven't seen him in two years. But the two men that were standing by me that I'd gone to meetings with, that I'd formed some kind of a bond with through the program, were standing there that day to keep me safe because I had no power over that pot tray. And I said, I looked at both of them. They were both taller than me. Of course, that doesn't take much. <laughs> um, and they helped me flush the pot down the toilet and break all the bongs up, and I got rid of that pot tray. What a, a, a load left, lifted off my chest. And it took me another couple of months. People were waving at me with four fingers when I'd come into meetings. Hey, Bruce, have you done the fourth step? You know? And I drug my feet because I was angry, angry, angry for a long time. And then finally, a guy came into my life that was six or seven years sober at the time and, and uh, asked me if, if he could lead me through the steps. And I said, well, yeah, I, I guess. Kind of reluctant because I, didn't, I wasn't sure how much I really wanted to change. I wanted to stop drinking. I wanted you guys to flip that switch so, or the button so I wouldn't drink or think any more the way I did. But I knew something had to change because the first speaker meeting I went to, this little Catholic nun sitting straight across from me, like right where Mike is, uh, she was the speaker that night. And I looked around <coughs> the room and I said, hey, I wonder who's speaking tonight. And she said, well, that would be me. And I said, well, and who are you? I said, well, she said her name is Sister B, and she was from California. And I thought right then and there, here I am, a construction worker, young, you know, in fairly decent shape. What is a little old lady going to tell me to keep me sober one day? And she said, you know, Bruce, the same person will drink again. And I thought, wow. Right off the bat, the first thing that she came out with was that. And I was blown away. I didn't understand it at first. But then she included me in her speech because I said, man, I feel like I'm a half a bubble off. And she gets up on the podium and we're in front of 400 people and she's talking to me directly and telling, 
everybody out there of what I said at the dinner before. And I felt like I belonged. I've, from that day forward, things did start to change. And when this man asked me uh, if he could lead me through the steps, I accepted and I said, yes, I will. And he was patient, tolerant, and kind when we sat down that day. And he said, Bruce, do you understand what Rule 62 is all about? And I said, no. What is Rule 62? And he said in the 12 and 12, it's, it talks about you taking yourself not so seriously. And he told a little story of his plight and how he got into the program. And I always thought this man, and I, I, I went to high school with this guy, and I always thought he was worse than I was. He was worse drunk. And I, and I was kind of reluctant to choose him and have him lead me through the steps because I always thought he was a worse drunk than me. But I found out through his story and then through mine and comparing the two that we were one and the same. I don't talk down to anyone in this program. We have one day sober today, and I'm glad you're here. And I hope you get a little bit of what I think I have but it can also be a fleeting moment where I think I have it and then it's gone because the book all, just talked about on 317, you know, that the steps are never done. Now, um, through this process, I got to learn humility, and every one of these steps is still teaching me humility because I don't have any. I really have none. And I love the steps because I would not have been able to shake that man's hand, that, that man's hand yesterday afternoon had it not been for this program. And somewhat... Of, of the, the teachings you guys have given me about humility. So, um, you know, it's, uh, if willingness is the key to unlock the gates of hell, it is action that opens the doors so that we may walk freely among the living. And that's what I wanted to do because I, I felt like I was half dead most of the time. You know, um, I'll never be done with the steps. Um, I, I do believe, and I heard this a while back, and pretty much everything I've given you tonight so far is somebody has given it to me through the process of working the steps and going to meetings, hearing speakers, uh, speakers' tapes. They told me to get the hell out of the first step and get into the, the program of action. And that is, uh, I do feel that when we go to meetings and we see a newcomer in the, in the, in the room, we automatically convert over to a first step meeting, and I think that's so wrong. And Chris Raymer is one of my heroes, and he, he talked, excuse me, three years ago at Lake Pleasant along with Mickey Bush. And he's a big uh, opponent of getting the newcomer right out of the first step. Because if you're here tonight, you've, you've more or less admitted you've got a problem, and all we gotta, all you got to do is ask yourself, hey, is my, my life manageable? If it's manageable, I wouldn't be sitting here. My, my life is still can be unmanageable, but not, not every day like it was. Um, had to find a God, so I blew through three. Would, busy in four, writing it all down, trying not to get drunk in the process because they said if I didn't do a fourth and give it away in the fifth that I was going to get drunk. And I kind of sidestepped three because I was, I was raised as a Methodist and I would go to church every Sunday and I'd look to the left and I'd look to the right sitting on the pew and this guy would be in the front of the room and I wouldn't understand him. I couldn't understand him. And I felt like that one person in a crowd of 100 was the only one. I'm sitting there all by myself because I thought I was the only one in the room that didn't understand what this guy was saying. And I never got it at church. I never really did. They put me on the youth board for the 
the church youth group, and they wanted to be sit, me to sit in these boring adult meetings to voice the opinion of the youth. And then after two hours of sitting there in these meetings, they didn't really want to hear about it anyway, so I thought they were lying to me the whole time. So I lost interest in the church, and I left. I had a bad bike crash. They put me in the hospital for a month or two, and I had uh, 2,500 stitches inside and outside my body. 975 more in my mouth and they wired my jaws and my teeth together after they were knocked out and I sat there eating out of a straw for about four months and it was not quite four months probably three months anyway um, didn't look like anybody in my family for about two years and when they were weaning me off all these drugs that was another additive for this alcoholic to go run wild and my folks were telling me I had to do this and I had to do that. And I, I was a rebel with a cause then. Uh, I, my body was screaming at me. I needed more of what they gave me. And they gave me some good drugs while I was there. And so that's when I added drugs to the mix pretty permanently along with the alcohol. Then I'm a full-blown idiot. Turned me into a full-blown idiot. And uh, I couldn't be dependable. I wasn't a good brother. I wasn't a good son. I wasn't a good boyfriend. I was not trustworthy in your house. And I didn't care. Today I care. Today I care. You guys helped that to happen. Um, you know, uh, I found a solution here. And it maybe isn't for everyone. This program really isn't for everyone. I have a lot of brothers that I've buried just in the last five years that said they wanted this program. You know, it's not for everyone. It's not for some of the people that even want it. It's for the people that try and work for it. And that's, I, I'm trying to work for it, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm ever doing anything correctly or not. But I have a sponsor. Because if I'm sponsoring people, I have to have a sponsor. I have to be accountable to somebody. Because uh, it's trust God, clean house, and help others. And I never know when that's going to be. I never know. Paul asked me to be his sponsor a long time ago, and I still don't understand why he has, you know. I love this guy. He has been a bright spot in my life, as well as some of the other guys that have asked me to, to, to lead them through the steps. Now, they don't all stick. They don't all stick for reasons of their own. Uh, whether they're alcoholic, maybe they aren't. I don't know. Uh, one guy came to me. He's a Native American, and he's very spiritual. But he came to me in anger. And wow, how, how I could relate to that. Because I used to be angry. And I still can be angry. But you guys give me the tools today to get off my duff, get off my bar stool. Because you see, I really was on the bar stool all the way through the fifth. The day I gave my fifth, I found out that I had to quit blaming others for my lot in life. I found out how strong my parents were in trying to guide me in the right direction. And I saw where I was failing as a son. I started to see more of my part in my life than I'd, and, and at a different angle than I'd ever seen it before. And I was this guy the tornado that the book talks about, whipping through people's lives, not knowing it, not caring, and it was all about me. I was all that, you know. Uh, the, the, again, the paragraph and a half in the big book about the sixth and the seventh step, I didn't quite get for a long time. And what happened to me was I was trying to do the right thing by my mom, and we got to be very, very close before she died, thank God. 
because that's primarily what I got sober for, was I wanted to get to know my mom and dad. They were this fortress that I could never penetrate when they were together when I was growing up and I was always the hellion. And it was all, why aren't you more like your sister? Your, her grades are so much better. Why don't you be more like her? And I really didn't care to be like her at all, so I went the other direction. But I got really close to my mom, and I made a, I made a, a nine-step amends with her, and we began to talk, and we talked, and we talked. And lots of ugly things came out. Found out they wanted another girl, but when I came, uh, she loved me just the same. Um, I could sense that. And what's strange about all of this in a full circle, uh, the night my mom died, she talked about a bicycle that she was still angry about not getting because her mother said no when she was a little girl. And she carried that anger all of her life. And I know I have a lot of my mom in me, but I love her. I still do. You know, I had no idea how much power my mom had over me until she died. And she looked up at me about three or four hours before she died, and she said, Bruce, how long do I have to do this? You guys gave me that power to say, you don't, Mom. I'll take care of any unfinished business. You just go ahead and go if you want. My sister looked at me, and this is this religious sister that went to Oral Roberts University and Shiloh Bible College, and she looked at me with so much contempt, it was unreal. And she stormed out of the room and said, why did you say that? And my dad followed her. And I've always felt like there was a, it was a longer process for me to learn how to communicate with those two than it was my mom. And they stormed out of the room, and the nurse grabbed me. She gave me a big old kiss and a hug, and she said, thank you. And I said, what do you mean, thank you? She said, she needs to release. And three hours later, she was gone. And I was so glad to be her best friend the night she died. Now, there was another 12 years of working the steps being of service, going to a lot of places I didn't want to go. I went to work release on Thursday nights for about nine years. It was eight to nine years. Every Thursday night, I would spend with 36 people that didn't want me there. They had their Walkmans on, playing in the corner. They would not interact. They, I would read to them out of the book, and once in a while, I would get one of them to, to help me read part of the chapter that I was into. And what they said was, we don't care if you're here or not. We want our outage outing hours. And if you don't show up, we still get them because we can say, AA doesn't work, so you didn't show up. But I would never not show up. That's what pissed them off. And they finally took those Walkmans off and they started to interact. So if I got through with, to one of them in that eight or nine years, I did my job. Now, the, the, what happened to me through that process when my mom died, the next week my cousin died. The week after that, my best friend fell in love over the Internet, moved back to Michigan to see this lady, and her ex shot him to death. And then five other people Jeez. died in the program. And, all I, and then I got, went to work, and I got bit by a brown recluse spider, and I had quit smoking just before my mom died. And I didn't pick up a cigarette, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drug through all of that because of the Thursday night meetings that I didn't want to go to. Every night I would go on Thursday night, didn't want to go, and at the end of that night, after I was there, I would walk home on a cloud. And it was like, wow. What, it, the, the, the program truly works if you let it. And, I, and I'm case, case in point, it, sa it saved my life doing just that. Because I would go to meetings, and I wasn't getting anything out of the meetings. I couldn't listen. I was in so much grief. I didn't know how to grieve. I learned how to grieve 
through that period. And that was nine years sober, and that was my worst year. And I thought, man, I thought I had it whipped. I thought I had it all down. I was DCM, and I was GSR, and I was in the Roundup Committee, and I was doing all this stuff, and it was taking me out below the belt. But I'd still go to meetings, and I'd sob for a long time. I changed sponsors because that's what I had to do. And uh, I got to stay sober through it. And then the process of the ninth step came up, and I'm still doing the ninth step. I never know when I'm... I love it when I go to a meeting and somebody says, Oh, I'm all done with my ninth step. I'm thinking, wow, you're not human. Because, see, I make mistakes. I'm going to always have a ninth step of some kind because I'm going to say something wrong sometime. And if I don't immediately take care of it, I better do it quick because that resentment will set in or that, that feeling of failure, that alcoholism will kick my ass. And it will say, I'm not worthy, I'm not, it's not worth it, let's not continue to fight. And I've watched my friends do that one by one. They forget to, to continue the fight, and then the drink takes them, or the drug takes them back. I don't want that. I want to stay sober today. I want you guys to stay sober today. One of us in here probably won't. I don't know who that's going to be, and I hope it's not any of us. But it's the statistics. Anyway... Sixth and the seventh, that, that paragraph and a half, took me in, until I got down here uh, 13 years ago. And I was already 12 years sober. And I didn't really understand it. And I had the sponsor that I had at the time. I was supposed to go talk about it at a treatment center. And I called him up. I said, hey, I don't know really anything about this sixth and the seventh step, the shortcomings and the character defects. Because you'll hear all kinds of malarkey in meetings, how they're different. They aren't. Bill and Bob put those in the book the same. They just kept the interest of the alcoholic by changing it a little bit. They're the same. I heard the character defects were God-given and the shortcomings were, were stuff you could have taken away. Well, I have them all still. But they gave me the tools to work on them. I can be angry. I can be deceitful. I can be a liar, a cheat, a thief in a heartbeat. But I don't want it. I don't want that. This is not what the book tells me. I don't like that phrase, you sober up a horse thief, you still have a, a horse thief. I don't like that phrase because that's not what this book's telling me. It's telling me I've got to change. I have to change everything about me. My playmates, my playthings, all of the stuff, the way I think and everything. So in that process of learning the, the sixth and the seventh step, I had to go all the way back to three again and revisit the God thing. And then I got a different I got a different idea and, a, a, and it shed more light on what I have in my life today that I improve in the 11th step. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact only asking for the knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out and through meditation I get a closer contact with the power greater than myself and I need that. I'm not a religious person. I don't want to be a religious person because I remember my sister looking like an idiot as a religious person. So I came in the program, I am still a religious spastic. I do not understand religion, but I, I, I infuriate some people. When I go to a meeting and I'll say, my God is bigger than any one religion, and if you have a problem with that, talk to me after the meeting. I don't ever usually get any takers after the meeting. I don't. Because I will not buckle. I don't. And I think religion is just another avenue for, for uh, a feud. I'm sorry. They've, they've created more wars with religion than I can. You can count them up back in history. So I'm going to not go there. 
that's enough out of me in religion. I just know that I'm very screwed up in that area because I came from a totally religious side and then where I'm at now. And I'm more comfortable with where you guys have put me than in any church. I'm sorry. And I know I, I don't mean to insult anybody that goes to church regularly because I'm, I'm glad for you. I'm glad you get something out of it. Um, the eighth step, I made this list right away in my fifth that day. And I wasn't sure where that was going to lead me, but I started writing stuff down. And I know that the fourth step, when I had this resentment list, there was quite a bit that was put on my eighth. And I reviewed it again, and I had to add some more. Because, see, it says in the book, more will be revealed. And it's still being, more will be revealed. I don't think I could have handled it all at once, had it been landed on me. I got a letter on a Christmas uh, holiday saying, hey, uh, my mom tells me you're my dad. I'm 18 years old. I live in Portland. I whoa. I was sober. Thank you. I stayed sober. Thank you. You know, I didn't know how to handle that, and I don't think I, I, I don't think I don't believe that God put him in my life when I was drinking for a reason, because I would not know how to have handled it. You guys helped me with that. You walked me through all of that. Got to be friends with this guy for about five years. He decides to go back out. And we met through his recovery and my recovery. And I got to stand up with him at his wedding. And he has two really neat little boys. And then he started to change. And I could tell his phone calls were a little different. And his visits were a little different. He became more selfish. And pretty soon he needed a car. I gave him a car. and He wasn't happy. And I tried to make him happy again because he needed another car, and he drove off with my dad's car, and I paid my dad back for it, and he's drove off into the sunset, and I haven't seen him since. So if his relationship with me is all over a car, that's fine. People say, oh, you've got to correct that. No, I don't. That's going to be in God's time. I know that. I know it's in God's time now. I don't force anything. I can't push a chain. There's no way I can make this relationship work unless we're both willing. I'm willing, but I'm not going to go on his playing field. I, will, I refuse to do that. It's going to be on a sober light, in a sober area, doing it the way I see fit. Because I'm the adult in the equation. I'm sorry. I wasn't ever until I sobered up. And now I'm the adult in the equation. When things happen, my sister does not like me. We have not had a, a relationship in about three and a half, four years. Because now I stand on the firing line and she has nobody, else, nobody to blame anymore. Because I don't run. I don't run away from fights anymore or arguments, or disagreements. I am there to see the whites of her eyes lie one more time over a God that she thinks she has and tell me that I'm at fault. And that's what's happened. And I, I love my sister, but I, that's another relationship that I have to work on. But you know what? I'm not going to drink over that one. It's okay to have that relationship today. I, in my heart, maybe someday when he sees fit to make it, to mend it, then we will but I'm not going to push a chain. I can't force that relationship to happen on one side. It's got to be both ways. And if it's up to God, he will make that happen. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the ninth step that I did with my dad, I, I, I felt that I had to get to know him. And after my mom died, I was trying to spend more time with him. And he was having heart trouble. And I... I thought that we would maybe have a little vacation together and I'd get to know him better. And I took my little motorhome out on the road with him to bring him down here to see his brother because I didn't really know my dad and I wanted to know him. You know, I, 
mom and dad were this fortress I could never penetrate. And now that he was on his own, he was more receptive to spending time. And when I got down here, uh, we got really close. Um, that was 13 years ago. And uh, I said one day that I, I needed to probably go to a meeting because I was feeling a little bit dry. And my aunt and uncle, I got to making amends to, and we got very close with them. Uh, they since have gone out and run away into the desert and died. And, and all my reasons for coming down here are all gone now. My dad died. But i got to tell you the story with my dad. Um, we became fast friends the last 12 years of his life, thanks to you people. Uh, when I went, came down here to Casa Grande to see my aunt and uncle, I, I went to a meeting at the Miracle House in Casa Grande, and this guy tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, hey, you might come down here more often to see your aunt and uncle if you uh, call this phone number. And, of course, I procrastinated. Uh, that's a good alcoholic does that, you know, have an excuse. Got, we got all kinds of excuses. So I didn't call, and the next day I went back to that meeting, and he said, hey, did you call that guy? And I said, well, no, I had to talk to my sponsor, and I had to talk to my girlfriend, and, I, and he had his phone open and on, and he said, well, hey, say hello, his name's Mike. So I said, hi, Mike, this is Bruce, uh, who are you? He says, well, I have a job for you. Uh, if you're interested, you want to come out here to Palo Verde, uh, we'll get you signed up, and we'll see if you can pass the background check. And I thought, oh, great, I'll never pass the background check. But I, I told my dad, I said, well, I'll, I'll see you in a little while, you know. I came out here, and I, I started to do paperwork. And I had to do a four-step with the, uh, the powers to be out here. And I had to drag up a bunch of old files that I needed to know dates of, and I didn't have them. But luckily, um, they let me in. And three days later, I'm putting my dad on the airplane. I'm flying him home on me. I paid. And that was my gift. I told him he was going to go on vacation with me. And see, the whole time the program's working, the whole time. And I, and I had no power to do any of this on my own. And um, since then, this job has created other jobs that have created other jobs. And I've gone all around the United States. And I got to know my dad really well in 12 years. And I'd go fluff his pillows, and I would put his blankets up for the last five years of his life. In a, in a severe dementia care unit in Yakima, Washington. And he said, Bruce, I could have never done this without you. I'd never lived this long without you. He said that I don't know how many times. I want to thank you folks for that. Because I was his best friend the night he died. And I was there the night he died. And uh, that was, um, oh, man, when was that? 2000, 2011. Anyway, time flies, and here I am still trying to work the steps. I'm still trying to form that bond with a God that I don't understand that helps me stay sober and happy. And when I see one of you guys in the vegetable aisle, and you got a smile and I don't, and I'm having a bad day, like with Jack, if I saw him at a store with a smile, it'd have to brighten my day. Absolutely. You know, and that's the way God works in my life today. When I least expect it, I am praying going down I-10. And I know everybody's heard this story from me, but this is one of my God shots. I was having problems one day. This alcoholic mind was working on me. Everybody was picking on me. And my God, why are people this way? Poor me. I hadn't been to a meeting in six days. We were working 12-hour days. I'm going down I-10 towards Phoenix to a meeting that I really hadn't gone to very much. And I was pissed. And I said, okay, God, I keep hearing in meetings. I'm supposed to pray for other people. Here I go. 
I'm going to pray for all those guys who were assholes to me today, or I think that were assholes to me. And I want them to prosper. I want them to have what they need and let them be happy. And I said, I want my friends and family to be happy and be safe and prosper. Let them have what they need today. And if there's anything left over, please pass it my way. Amen. <laughs> Three honks on the horn. I look to my left and hear two nice-looking ladies waving and smiling at me. They lift their tops up and press their breasts <laughs> against the glass. And I was no longer mad. I had been mad all day. And they didn't just pass me up. They followed me all the way into Phoenix, smiling and waving at me. And I go to this meeting, and I didn't really know very many people. And I said, you will not believe what happened to me coming to this meeting. I said, I'm still trying to form this bond with a God that I really don't understand, but I'm praying for somebody else for the first time in my life, and this is what I get back in return. I said, I came in here walking in with a grin, and I got everybody laughing and chuckling, and you know, I'm friends with those people today because of what you guys have given me, what you guys have made me do. I'm not going to say made me, but you've suggested strongly. Let's put it that way. And you know... Um, I do believe that I'd, if I'm not living the 10th step, and I'm sorry we've been talking too long, um, if I'm not living the 10th step and believing and praying towards and working on the 11th step, that I'm going to be the old Bruce that I used to be. I don't believe that the 10th step is, is a, a maintenance step at all. I believe that it is a living step and that I have to be in it at all times because it reminds me of the 6th and the 7th. It reminds me of the, of the character defects and the shortcomings that I have. And it tells me that, hey, I need to pray to God in three. And, and that insanity can always return and it proves that it can in a heartbeat in two. So this disease is arrested only by the grace of God and the work of others. And you guys are those others. And if I, don't, if I lose that connection with you, I will be drunk tomorrow. And I, I have to beg to differ with the sponsor that I have today. I do not choose. I, there are too many times when God takes me out of meetings on his terms for a week or two or three at a time. On his terms. I don't deliberately miss a meeting if I can make one. Because you guys give me more than you understand. And I hope you stay around long enough to understand how much you enhance my sobriety. And with that, I better shut up. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce.